0: Climate protesters have thrown soup on Van Gogh's sunflowers. They've blocked roads and they've spray-painted luxury car dealerships in the UK. US President Joe Biden's climate plans have been hotly debated during the US midterm election campaign. And meanwhile, experts warn that the devastating floods in Pakistan that caused billions of dollars in damage and displaced 30 million people were 50% worse due to climate change there is a debate raging internationally about climate change. What should and could be done? There remain those who dismiss the overwhelming scientific evidence of man-made causes to climate change. That the release of greenhouse gases like carbon dioxide are leading to a sustained average rise in global temperatures. They deny that this is leading to more frequent and severe weather events like hurricanes and floods. Meanwhile. 194 governments have so far signed up to the 2015 Paris Agreement on Climate Action that aims to drastically cut our carbon emissions and try to avert the worst impacts of climate change. As around 45,000 people, including world leaders like Mr Biden or UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, head to Egypt for the COP27 Global Climate Forum, the UN had a stark warning. The battle against carbon emissions is not going well. Current government plans are not nearly ambitious enough to prevent the earth warming between 2.1 and 2.9 degrees by the end of the century. In 2015, governments agreed to try and halve emissions by 2030. Instead, based on today's projections, there'll be a 10% rise in global emissions by 2030. This is Beyond the Headlines. I'm James Haynes-Young, and this week we're taking stock of where the world is on climate action and asking, what can we expect from COP27? Before we start, if you like Beyond the Headlines and want to get all of the latest episodes as soon as they come out, just hit subscribe in your podcast app. COP stands for the Conference of the Parties. It's shorthand for the massive annual climate summit, where countries try to focus on the tangible action needed to avert the worst impacts of climate change. It can lead, like Paris in 2015, to massive international agreements. But it can also be frustrated by national interest. We saw this in 2021 in Glasgow when efforts to get a deal on limiting coal mining and burning fell apart. But as the world gathers in Sharm el-Sheikh in November, it can be hard to understand exactly where we are on climate action, what is being done, and is it even possible to still stop climate change? Every day we're seemingly bombarded by dire headlines and warnings, the hottest year on record, there's a lack of action. So to try and make sense of all of this, we spoke to one of Brazil's top climate scientists, Dr Carlos Nobre, about what progress has been made in cutting aco two emissions,
1: we are not going well. Uh, unfortunately, still we see the increase in greenhouse greenhouse gas uh, emissions uh, globally speaking. Uh, of course, we had that five to seven percent reduction during the pandemic, but then the the emissions went back up. In 2021, the same levels of 2019. And then 2022, all the evidence shows increase, perhaps 2% or 3%. So this is not good news. COP26 in Glasgow stated very clearly the the goals, 50% reduction of emissions by 2030 compared to 2021 and uh, we are not going in that direction. There are no signs that we are going to reach that goal and and therefore the risks for the planet due to this climate emergency increase
0: tremendously. Now, things can look quite bleak, but there are bright spots. We wanted to speak to Dr Carlos for two reasons. Yes, because he's an expert in his field, but also because he's extensively studied the Amazon rainforest, one of the most important habitats on the planet. The Amazon is under threat from logging, encroaching farmland, mining operations and fires. This poses massive risks for climate action. But just before world leaders headed to COP27, there was a possible piece of good news for the Amazon.
1: The Amazon... Forest is very, very near the tipping point. We call a tipping point of turning large portions, not uh, less than fifty percent of the rainforest, up to seventy percent of the rainforest, be to become open canopy degraded ecosystem, losing hundreds of thousands of species of biodiversity and releasing more than two hundred billion tons. Of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, making it almost impossible to reach the Paris Agreement targets. This is more than 2 million square kilometers from the Atlantic all the way to the Amazon forest in Bolivia, showing the forest there is becoming a carbon source. It's not removing carbon from the atmosphere. It's not a carbon sink anymore. So it's very close to the tipping point. Fortunately, we have elected a new president which as he was the president 2003-2010, Brazil had the largest emissions reduction in the planet when deforestation reduced 83%. So anyway, we are hopeful with the new president in Brazil, Brazil will go back to the, the sustainable pathway of getting to zero deforestation in the Amazon and reducing substantially emissions in Brazil.
0: So the Amazon forest is a massive carbon sink. All those trees and the vegetation lock up millions of tonnes of CO2. But if too much of it is lost and it stops locking up carbon and starts releasing it, it would rapidly undo much of the gains that we make elsewhere in cutting greenhouse gases. Destruction of the Amazon accelerated under the current right-wing populist president, Jair Bolsonaro. But he's just lost an election to left-wing heavyweight Luis Inacio Lula da Silva. And Lula, as he's popularly called, has a track record of protecting the Amazon.
1: We need to get to zero deforestation, zero forest degradation, and wildfires. Our wildfires are increasing tremendously. The last few months, we had a record breaking number of wildfires in the Amazon. President elect Lula, uh, in his uh, uh, initial speech a few hours after the, ele- the election, he makes a very important statement that. During his four years as president, he will take to zero deforestation. That's very important because when he was a president, two thousand three two thousand ten, also deforestation rates in the Amazon reduced substantially. So it's not only a politician's promise, which is hard to believe, but he has demonstrated in the past the way to reduce deforestation in the Amazon and also. In Colombia, the president of Colombia, Petros, also is following, looking for, also getting to zero deforestation in the the forest in in Colombia, the tropical forest in Colombia, including the Amazon forest in Colombia. So I think, you know, at least initially, President Lula, President Petros, they will put together many, uh, if not to say all Amazonian countries to pursue... This big challenge, but it's doable because more than 90% of deforestation in all of the Amazon is completely illegal, it's controlled
0: by organized crime. And so there are bright spots, or shall we say, potential bright spots. But there's also loads of action being done around the world. China, the world's largest emitter, recorded a 3% year on year cut in carbon emissions. That amounts to nearly half of Australia's entire output. of the investment in the power sector was into green sources, smart grids and better storage. The sale of electric cars is outpacing expectations. The US, where climate legislation is notoriously difficult to get a consensus on, has passed the Emissions Reduction Act that could see the giant emitter cut output by 43% by 2030. So that brings us to what next? Well, What next is Sharm el-Sheikh and COP27. The world already has its forecasts, it has an agreement on what to do, and it needs to start rolling up its sleeves. To find out a bit more about what COP27 is and why it's not just another talking shop, we sat down with Sara El-Batuti. Sara is a non-resident scholar at the Middle East Institute and an award-winning architect with 18 years' experience in the field of green and environmental building. She's also been involved in getting the conference ready. So, Sarah, what exactly is COP27? So, normally you think
2: that it's, uh, it's a conference, it means there are only governments or politicians, but COP is quite unique because COP is a corporation of all those who can i.e. it's not just governments, it's governments, it's um, institutions, entities, agencies, you know, individuals, activists, companies, SMEs. And so it's a real congregation of all those who are affected and all those who recognize that they have a role to play in reversing the climate uh, situation that the whole, the entire world is in. COP27 is basically the 27th conference that uh, is required to, you know, um, assess the buildup in the previous COPs, where the commitments are, especially after the Paris Agreement, which was a major milestone in COP, where everyone agreed. And then also to look at where where do we go from here?
0: So the aim of the climate summit is to get world leaders, stakeholders, NGOs, activists, companies and anyone else with a say in what is going on into a room to find solutions, to make connections and to get us on the road to zero carbon emissions. The science shows that at this stage we can't stop climate change. Some level of warning is now baked in. We're already seeing the changing weather patterns, increased storms and floods warming arctics and melting glaciers. Sarah points out that there are four main pillars of conversation at COP. These are mitigation, trying to lessen the impact of climate change, adaption, equipping people to live with these changes, financing solutions to prevent it getting worse, and collaborating around solving this. But this year, there'll be a lot of focus on action.
2: COP27 is unique because it is the COP of implementation. Uh, In layman's terms, you know, uh, a lot of what we've been doing about climate change is basically communicating the science, communicating research. There's a lot of talk all the time from governments. There's a lot of um, theoretical uh, and hypothetical action going on. It's now time that all of this thinking and speaking and dialogue becomes projects becomes action on the ground implementable projects that can receive funding that can have um monitoring and assessment and also have accountability this is why cop 27 is unique it's because it's the cop of implementation there is no time to keep chatting about climate change it's time to implement climate action it is also in africa uh, in Egypt, and therefore, for it to be in within emerging markets highlights a different perspective as to what the conversations are and the de- demographics are, and sheds light on the region's issues as well.
0: Logistically, Sarah says that this year's COPs split into two zones: a more official blue zone and the more civil society, business-focused green zone.
2: So, the blue zone is the zone where you have the UN. And all its agencies, the champions, the high level climate champions, and you have the pavilions of the countries, and you also have all of the accredited blue zone badge um, accreditation bodies there. It's a very, very serious area. And the blue zone is held in the convention center with a large extension. And basically, this zone is, is where the negotiators are also there every country and every entity has its negotiators there making sure that everything is transparent everything is discussed everything is you know plays into n- that no one is is kind of you know um sidelined or or ignored or or whatever so the negotiators are there that is the blue zone and it's a pretty restricted zone where all of the pledges all of the paperwork all of the negotiations are expected to uh to be revealed the green zone is a platform. It's where, you know, business, youth, civil society, indigenous societies, academia, artists, all different types of representation, you know, from music to product design, to fashion, to um, intelligent uh, cities, to inspirational speakers. They're all in the green zone. And the green zone is a real representation of, the the changing culture towards climate awareness. And it's a wonderful place to visit. You know, you will find everything that you need for a family or a, a business trying to showcase itself in the right place. And then this is where a lot of networking happens.
0: Sara helped build the space that Egypt has established at the COP27 to show off its work and its main hub in this huge conference. She's talked us through her thought process for the design and how the space will be used.
2: So the Egypt host pavilion is in the blue zone. It has, you know, it's it's a working pavilion. So throughout the whole COP, you know, you have seminars, you have discussions and you have side meetings and you have ministers and the prime minister and lounges and networking. It's a very busy place um, to, to host people. And there are so many pavilions in that area and everyone is trying to express their culture or express their outlook. Uh, with respect to the environment. When it came to the design of the Egypt pavilion, I thought that I want to represent architectural heritage of Egypt, but also I thought that the best way to express Egypt's inherent connection with nature and natural resource management uh, is seen through art. And so the pavilion itself is a very, very, very simple pavilion. It is designed with some architectural features that look into the different eras of Egypt. So, um, you know, reference to the stone, reference to the mashrabeya, which is a a cooling and shading solution that was innovated in Egypt. And it was exported all over uh, the Middle East uh, and some Persian societies. And it is an exhibition that highlights contemporary art and the collaboration of how artists think of the link between humanity and nature.
0: World leaders, businesses, scientists, international agencies, they'll all be at COP27. The focus is on implementation, but also on addressing the imbalance that the largest emitters need to help the poorest nations cope with the changes that they've contributed almost nothing towards causing, but are feeling incredibly acutely. Of course, 2015 saw the Paris Accord, COP26 in Glasgow got close to a deal on coal. So, what does Sarah and Dr. Carlos hope to see out of COP27?
2: I think the financing framework will be one that is a is a is a very important argument because without the financing and without tapping into um, the financing, uh, it it will still remain talking, just talk. So uh, there's no time for that. We really have run out of time when it comes to this. And in COP27, the tangible and investment-worthy projects are going to be showcased, and therefore there is no excuse for any lag. I say that with my head held high as an activist in that sense. I really do believe if there's no more excuses.
0: Dr. Carlos agreed, and he got into some of the details about this funding. To
1: quickly convert all the economic systems to to meet the Paris Agreement targets fifty percent emissions reduction by twenty thirty, net zero by twenty fifty, uh, this investments and these uh, funds should be something like uh, seven hundred billion dollars a minimum. So this is one uh, thing that it would be important really to get a a full agreement about the world's uh, leaders during COP27.
0: What Dr. Carlos is talking about here is the Green Climate Fund, designed for wealthier, industrialised countries that are the most responsible for greenhouse gases, to contribute money to help the least well-off nations adapt and use green energies and mitigate the impacts of climate change. Dr. Carlos's second hope was also about financing. Financing for the most impacted by climate change.
1: To create the funds for those vulnerable populations which are really being already affected, losses and damage. uh, That has to be a a very significant fund, perhaps several hundred billion dollars a year, uh, as we can see more and more. And that was all predicted by the science. Science for decades, they've been saying, you know, the climate extremes will become more frequent, more frequent, more frequent, more severe, record-breaking extremes. And therefore, I mean, these extremes uh, are affecting certainly the most uh, vulnerable population all over the world. We could see strong hurricanes creating a tremendous risk to the populations in Bangladesh. We, we saw Months ago, Pakistan people, large millions of people in, in Pakistan being affected by floods. And of course, these countries they have a very, very, very insignificant contribution to global emissions, uh, historically speaking. So, therefore, uh, also this fund is very important to be created. And uh, it was a frustration during COP26 because all of us we expect this fund to be created. It was not created. Let's hope. COP27 will create this fund, which is very important to improve the livelihoods of all these vulnerable populations being affected.
0: Lastly, he wants to see an agreement framework for carbon credit markets to encourage this as a way of reducing emissions globally. Now, carbon credits are a tradable permit to emit, say, one ton of carbon dioxide. If we globally assigned a fixed number of these, but allowed countries and corporations to trade them, then heavier polluters could pay countries or firms not using their share, or indeed pay companies or countries that are protecting, say, the Amazon rainforest, or finding ways to sequester carbon in long-term storage. Each year, the world could then reduce the number of credits, driving the price up and therefore incentivizing countries and firms to cut emissions rather than pay for increasingly expensive carbon credits. The idea is essentially harnessing market forces to make going green just good business. But the issue is that so far, there's very little formal regulation. It's voluntary. There are good and bad actors in the sector. And of course, no penalties for simply ignoring it. If this were to work, then there needs to be an enforceable mechanism and transparent standards. With all the dire headlines and the warnings, is Dr. Carlos hopeful that the world can actually meet its targets and avoid the worst impacts of climate change?
1: Well, you know, I think uh, this is a very critical moment in human history because, uh, ideally speaking, the global population, let's say consumers, uh, should be more should be radical in terms of forcing the economic system towards a net zero emissions in within a few decades. So consumers they have to start really uh, being very critical about, uh, uh, let's say, sustainable consumption of food. And of course, I mean the big challenge, close to seventy percent of global emissions of greenhouse gases is associated with energy for transportation, for electricity generation. So is it possible to move quickly to renewable energy? Yes, it is possible. Economically speaking, in most countries in the world, uh, solar, wind energy, it's cheaper. It makes a lot of sense. Of course, giving up scale to this renewable energy is a big challenge, but it's doable. So it's a big challenge. But I think, you know, this is really... The moment to do
0: it. Thanks this week to Sara Albatuti in Cairo and Dr. Carlos Nobre in Sao Paulo. We were produced this week by Thomas Smith, Arthur Edison, with help from Kamal Tabiha. I'm James Haynes-Young, and this was Beyond the Headlines. To get all of the latest episodes as soon as they come out, why not hit subscribe in your podcast app? And if you can leave us a review while you're there, it makes all the difference.